listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. If you've ever experienced a restless night where you were just tossing and turning, head was spinning, and uh, anxiety-inducing, conscience-bothered, guilt-stricken, you've probably had some nights like that in your life like I have, because when those come, one of the reasons is because we, as sinful, broken people, tend to make bad exchanges. We make bad exchanges. The kind of exchanges that keep us awake at night, that keep us stirring because something's not right. Bad exchanges. I I don't know what it was for you. Maybe it was because you exchanged hurtful words with somebody. And as a result, you exchanged a relationship for being right or winning an argument. Or maybe for you, you exchanged self-control for indulgence. And now that one decision, self-control for indulgence, has led to a whole host of things that are now exchanging in your life. Like you've exchanged contentment for materialism, or freedom for addiction, or sexual integrity for lust, or healthy relationships for a toxic relationship, good for evil, right for wrong. It was a bad exchange. We we tend to do that as people. And and every time we make a bad exchange, it leads to regret. It leads to shame. It leads to brokenness. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter two, if you have a Bible or device today, you may want to open up to that. Jeremiah chapter two, he describes an exchange that is so bad that he said, you better be appalled and you better shudder with great horror. It's a bad exchange. I don't know what you think of when you think of a, of a bad exchange. You know, uh, when I, I, I remember years ago when I saw the movie Dumb and Dumber, when, when, when Jim Carrey's character exchanged the van for the little mini moped going up the mountain to Aspen. That was a bad exchange, though they thought it was brilliant at the time. Although the way gas prices are now, it's, it, that suddenly becomes a, a good idea again, uh, which is one of the points of, uh, I think, even in the movie. But, you know, those are bad exchanges. But, but Jeremiah chapter 2 takes us to a whole other level. Because in Jeremiah 2, as Jeremiah writes in about 620 BC, when he gives this word to the people, God speaks to him to warn the southern kingdom of Judah about the coming Babylonians who were coming to conquer them and to take them into exile. And the reason for it is summarized for us in Jeremiah 2, 10 through 12. And here's what God says. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. There is an exchange that when made should lead you to shudder with great horror. God says you can look to the coast of Cyprus in the west. You can look to Kedar in the east. And you will not find a pagan society that has ever changed its gods, given up their gods. They're more faithful to their gods that are worthless, these idols that can do nothing for them. 
than you, Israel, are to the one true God. This is what God has against his people. In fact, he goes on to say this in verse 5 of Jeremiah 2. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law, they don't know me. The leaders, they rebelled against me. The prophets, they prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. God's charge against his people is revealing that they should be shuddering with horror because of this exchange they made, giving up God for something else. And and when you read these words, you should shudder. When you exchange the Lord for worthless idols. And God says there's three groups of people here doing it. The priests, I mean, they ought to be the religious leaders who ought to know me. They don't even know me. They're not following me. The leaders, the political and civil leaders of the day, whether it was judges or kings or whoever, they're not following me. The prophets who ought to be declaring what God says and being his messengers, they're not giving God's message to his people. In fact, they're following Baal. They're coming up against Jeremiah, the the true prophet, with their own words. They're not following God. And so he concludes with this in verse 13. My people have committed two sins. First, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water... And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God says, they've rejected me and they've replaced me. Those are the two sins. They've rejected me and then they have replaced me. You should shudder when you exchange God, the spring of living water, your source, for your own broken cisterns that can't hold any water. That's a bad exchange. You know, it's interesting. He uses, he talks about, living water, springs of water, cisterns. Both were critical during the day of Jeremiah. They're in this part of Judah. They're in Jerusalem and the surrounding region. Natural springs were the most refreshing, reliable source of water in Israel. Uh, I know when our youth group through the years, we've always gone on this float trip and we'd go down to the North Fork River and there, is, there are springs that bubble up there that are just fresh and reliable, beautiful. And God is contrasting those springs that are reliable and dependable and satisfying from the cisterns of their day. Archaeologists have uncovered thousands of cisterns in this region, in this part of the world, which were critical because uh, for six months out of the year, rains were scarce, water was scarce. And so cisterns, which collected rainwater that held water, were used when needed, when necessary. And they were necessary, but over time, the water became stagnant. That was the first problem. And the other issue was, though they would be plastered on the inside so it could hold the water, the plaster would crack, and then the water would leak out. And so they were not dependable. They were not reliable. It was a source of concern. And this is the ridiculousness of idolatry, according to Jeremiah, that they're exchanging this spring of living water and they're exchanging it, this crystal clear water for cisterns that cannot hold water. And he says, when you do that, when you exchange what God is giving you for something else, you should shudder in horror. That's a bad exchange. That's idolatry. And I know for us today in the 21st century, idolatry sounds primitive. When we hear the word idolatry or idols, we we think it's irrelevant. 
relevant to us. I'm not bowing down to wood or stone. I don't think it applies. And yet it must apply because throughout scripture, it's in every book of the Bible. In the first five books, it's, there's 50 laws that have to do with idolatry. And Martin Luther said, you can't violate the other nine commandments unless you first break this one. The one about idolatry. Every day, gods are at war for the throne of your heart. Every day, gods are at war fighting. And you're one decision away from a bad exchange. And that should make you shudder. It should make you appalled with horror. Because we do the same thing Judah was doing. We choose broken wells with stagnant water instead of the source of living water being Jesus Christ. We too look for someone or something to do for us what only God was meant to do for us. We drink from other sources that that are not going to satisfy. We shouldn't be drinking from because we're turning away from our God. They don't satisfy either. That's why God even uses as a metaphor. He's like, you're turning to, to countries or nations like Egypt and Assyria. He's like, you're drinking from the Nile of Egypt. You're drinking from the Euphrates of Assyria. And he tells him it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to make you happy. In fact, he goes on in verses 21 through 22 of Jeremiah 2. He says, I planted you like a choice vine. You were a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine that's producing nothing? Although you wash yourself with soap and you use an abundance of cleansing powder. I like to know what they're using there. He says, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. You're still guilty. A bad exchange will leave you worse off than you were before. And you'll be guilty and stained before God. He goes on to say in verse 36, you will be disappointed with Egypt as you were by the Assyrians. In other words, he's saying you you should shudder. Not only when you exchange God for worthless idols or living water for cisterns that leak, but you should shudder when you exchange your joy for disappointment. And any time you pursue something or someone other than God, you're going to be left feeling empty and disappointed and discouraged. You'll be worse off than you were before. C.S. Lewis said, human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. There's a book uh, that Kyle Eidelman wrote years ago, and it's called uh, God's at War. And it really is about idolatry and what that looks like in our day and age. And, and Kyle just wrote in that book, he said, you know what? Here's what this looks like for us, for us today. Instead of looking to God as a source of comfort, you turn to food or mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God as a source of significance, you turn to your careers and your accomplishments. Instead of looking to God as our source of security, You look to money and investments. Instead of looking to God as a source of joy, you look to relationships, whether it's a spouse or child or friendship. Instead of God as a source of hope, we look to politicians and legislators. Instead of God as a source of truth, we look to popular opinion and academic consensus. We put our hope in something and it, that just doesn't hold water. It, it, it leaks and it leaves us feeling empty. Kyle, in that book, he tells the story of when his family was going to a house sit for another, some friends of theirs. 
And he said when they were going to house it for them, uh, for these friends of theirs, their children, which at that time they were younger, they were so excited to go house it. And the reason for that is because his family had this really large above ground pool and the kids could not wait to go swimming in the pool. It, it was, he said it was an incredibly hot part of summer, probably like today. You know, I got out of my car at 7 a.m. and it was just like, this feels miserable already. And so it was that kind of a day. And so the second day they were at the house, uh, they were going to go get in the pool, but, but uh, Kyle was just waking up. And his wife came in, she, she was already awake, and she said, Kyle, I think the pool is losing water. If we go out to the water levels down, you need to check and see if something's leaking. And so he goes out to the pool, and he was kind of checking things out. Well, he got his son's goggles, and he went down underwater, and he was looking along the, the panel there around the pool. And sure enough, he found this hole, and it was about the size of the, the end of a pencil, the eraser-sized hole in the pool. And he's like, mm, we need to patch that. And so he goes down to a pool store that was a short distance away. He says, hey, here's what's happening. What do I do? They explained him what he needed to do. He said it sounded simple enough. And so he went back. He took the patch that they gave him. He applied the glue for the underwater patch and he went underwater and he went right up to that hole and he pressed on that hole to rub that patch right in to seal that hole. And to his horror in that moment, the hole just started expanding. It just started opening up and he was like, no, no, no. And pretty soon it was like the size of a basketball, 18,000 gallons of water rushing through the hole and Kyle's about to go through himself. So he's pushing himself away from the hole. He jumps out of the pool. He grabbed towels and tried to stuff them into the hole, hoping that I would hold it. And the hole just got bigger and the water was just pouring out all around him. Pretty soon, 18,000 gallons emptied out into the yard. And at that moment, he just looks up in shock and all of his kids were lined up just watching. And they were just had these shocked looks on their faces. And he said, except for his youngest, he looked over there and tears were just streaming down their face. All of their hope was in that pool and it was gone. It was just emptied out. He said it was a horrible, horrible feeling in that moment. And haven't you experienced, metaphorically speaking, something just like that already in your life? Haven't you? For some of you, it may be how you feel about your marriage. You're in love and you're sure it's going to have this happily ever after ending. You, maybe your hope was in your spouse and you've been patching leak after leak and it only seems to be leaking more. Maybe for you it was your children because you had hopes and dreams for your kids. You've invested so much in them. You love them. And, but you're feeling a panic right now when you look at the decisions that they're making or the direction they're going and it's not leading where you thought it would go and you're wondering what happened or what's happening or what can I do about it and it just feels like it's the hole's getting bigger. It's also how you feel about your finances right now. Expenses are going up and you're looking forward to that trip or that vacation or that experience or maybe that retirement. But as you've watched those things deplete away, slowly drain away, you feel like you're without hope to fulfill those dreams. And it's in moments like that that you realize that whatever it is that you've put your hope in or your trust in, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. And it just feels like there's nothing that you can do. And in those moments, what do you do? I mean, who do you turn to? It's, it's exactly the question that the people of Jeremiah's day were asking when they too found themselves in a situation where everything in their life was gushing away and they just couldn't stop it. And God speaks to this in Jeremiah 2, 27 and 29. They say to wood, you're my father. To stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. Here's what God says. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? 
Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Why do you bring charges against me? You've rebelled against me, declares the Lord. What do you do when the very things that you've put your hope in, your time in, your affection in, your investment in, disappoint, and you've got nothing to show for it, and now those things that you are relying on leave you powerless, pointless, impotent, empty? What do you do? Maybe you turn to a different hope. Bruce Meads writes about a woman named Tammy Kramer, who she was the chief of an outpatient clinic in Los Angeles County. And she was working in that AIDS clinic there. And a patient was coming in for daily medication dose at that time. And he came in one day and sat in that same chair that he'd sat in before in the clinic on, on that stool waiting for the doctor to come. And when this doctor finally came in, it was a new doctor. The doctor hadn't been there before. He hadn't seen this doctor before. And the doctor came in, dispensed the medication. And then before walking away, the doctor said this to the patient. The doctor said, you, you know, don't you? You're not long for this world. A year at most. And the doctor left. Tammy Kramer, who heard those words, said the patient came by her desk on the way out and she could see the, the pain in his face. And when he made eye contact with her, he said through clenched teeth, that blankety-blank took my hope away. And Tammy Kramer said, I guess he did. Maybe it's time to find another hope. There comes a moment, I think for all of us, and it's not just one, it's many, when we've made bad exchanges, we come to a realization that whether we, in that moment, are willing to embrace it or not, when we realize it's time to turn to a different hope. We've poured ourselves into things that don't last, that prove meaningless, that are empty to help. Is there another hope? And the answer is yes. In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul speaks of a hope that will not disappoint. A hope that will last for eternity where, where God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Where God does this, he gives us what we need. He declares who we are. He provides us with everything. He's the living water, the spring of living water that we need in our life. And one of the most heart-breaking things to God and to our Father is to watch his own children rejecting the fresh and living water and replacing him with that which will never satisfy, with these nasty cisterns. And, and God knows in those moments that he, what he's giving us is pure. What he's giving us is good. What he's giving us is what we need because he's our creator. But we exchange it. We reject it. What we need is living water. We've been chasing after other things. Maybe you remember this encounter that Jesus had with the, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 at a well. When he comes there and he's thirsty and he asks her if she would draw water for him. And she's surprised because she's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. They don't, they don't correlate. And she's, as he asks for, for this drink, she, she, she's in shock. Why would you ask me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. And he tells her he would give her living water, springs of living water, of which she would never become thirsty again. And she's thinking in terms of physical water and physical need. And she would love some of that water if she never had to draw again. But as the conversation unfolds, she begins to realize he's talking about something way deeper. He's, this is a spiritual depth conversation that he's having with her. 
And in this moment, it's resonating with her because she has been going for other sources for her needs for many years. She's had five husbands. The man she's living with now, the sixth, is not her husband. She's gone into six cisterns looking to be satisfied and fulfilled. And every one of them have leaked. And none of them have provided what she's looking for and what she needs. And what Jesus is offering her is a spring of living water that will satisfy her soul. And when she comes to this awareness in this moment that this is what she's longing for, that he is the Messiah who's come to save the world, he offers her grace and forgiveness. She can't help but go back into town and share it with others that they too might believe, that they would know Jesus as well. He's the living water. And sometimes we just don't realize Jesus is that for us until we come to the end of ourselves and and we don't have anything else to show for it. We're, We're completely empty. And only then do we have this spiritual awakening where we reveal Jesus is, is the one he's it all along. He provides me. So what are you thirsty for? Are you stressed out? Are you stressed out and thirsty for peace? Are you lonely and thirsty for love? Are you bored and thirsty for purpose? Are you thirsty for acceptance or validation or significance? Are you thirsty for something more? The invitation of Jesus is drink from me. Everything you need is found in me. I am your life. I'm your life source. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm abundant life. I will give you everything. And our problem is we just are broken and we keep making bad exchanges. We exchange what God wants to give us for those things that don't last. And Romans chapter 1 in our Bibles in the New Testament is an example of bad exchange after bad exchange after bad exchange that we've made as people. In fact, in, in, in Romans chapter one twenty-two, it says that we exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God. We exchanged it. For images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, reptiles. We've exchanged the creator for his creation. In verse 24, it says, you know what else we've exchanged? Our own sexual integrity for sexual impurity of every kind. It says it's resulted in us degrading our bodies with one another. We've exchanged that which is good, what God designed for that which is not. In verse 26, he talks about how we've exchanged that which is good for shameful lusts in all of its forms, in every way. He goes on to talk about how we've exchanged the relationships God created for us for same-sex relationships. In verse 28, he says we've exchanged a healthy thought life for a depraved mind. He says we're filled with every wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. We're arrogant. We're boastful. He says, we even invent ways to do evil. We're inventing it. And not only do we continue to do these things, but we approve of people who do it. Romans 1 just goes through this list of brokenness where we're digging all of these cisterns that will never satisfy. They leak and we're broken because of it. We exchange that which is good for that which is not what God created. And he just keeps going on. He talks about how we've exchanged the identity of God for something else. And he's created us in his image, but we have identified with all of these other identities of what we want and who we want to be and what we want to become. We've manufactured these things because of our own feelings, our own desires, our own interests, our own passions, our own personal feelings and emotions, and none of it will satisfy. I was reading through that this week and just thinking through all the cisterns that we dig. And then I was reading through Romans chapter one of all the ways we've exchanged what God has created for for that which is not what God intended, and how right now in our culture, there's even a growing, I think we could call it pandemic, 
of which, and there's multiple reasons which I'm going to talk about in a minute, but where people are even exchanging who God has created them to be in his image as male and female. There's major dysphoria over this, confusion over this. It's growing at unprecedented rates, especially among girls, young girls. I was reading an article this week about transgenderism, gender and the Bible. It was in, uh, in renew.org. The website renew.org has several articles on this that are, I think, really good. But Ellen tells her story. And Ellen talks about how she grew up in a Christian home with God at the center of her household with these unconditionally loving parents. And she said, even still, her heart was fraught with insecurity growing up. And she said, mostly it was about her own femininity. Because in her home, her dad was sort of that traditional stereotype for a man. He was rough and tough and gruff. And her mom was complete opposite. Her mom was maybe the traditional epitome of gentle and quiet and nurturing. And Ellen says that that was not her style at all. She was more like dad in that way. It was just more the way that she was. She was in personality and character and boldness and and her strong-willed personality, all of that. And... It's something that now she's, she's proud of. I mean, and who God's made her to be, she's proud of that. But at the time, she wasn't. And so as a young girl with a tender heart and lots of insecurities and assumptions that she made based on those insecurities, she concluded that she was broken as a woman. She felt something must be wrong with her because she didn't match up to what she thought femininity was, that that bar had been set. And that bar was her mom's example and the way she was, and she couldn't naturally emulate it. She goes, I now realize there's multiple ways that, we can ex- that women can express their femininity and multiple ways men can express their masculinity. But at the time, she didn't. So she walked around with this incredible shame that I unknowingly masked as anger and hardness and superiority, especially directed towards her mom, because deep down, she resented her example of femininity and the inadequacy that it bred in her own heart. And eventually, she began to look for validation that she was woman enough. So when she got into high school, harboring all this insecurity and shame her whole life, she innocently befriended a girl that she just simply admired. She was a bit more like her. She was opinionated, strong-willed, outspoken, but she seemed okay with those parts of her. Whereas she says, I had grown up so ashamed of those parts of me. But as our friendship developed, so did my infatuation with her. She eventually became my idol. It got to the point where my entire identity and self, sense of self-worth was wrapped up in her and in our friendship. The relationship became emotionally enmeshed very quickly. For me, it bordered on obsessive. Honestly, when this level of emotional attachment and idolatry in a friendship is reached, especially among women, it's easy for a physical relationship to follow, and that's exactly what happened. This experience sort of springboarded me into a life of homosexuality. I lived as a lesbian for a time before I eventually surrendered my heart to God. At the end, she says, long story short, I I became a Christian and in her situation now, she says, I'm, I'm actually happily married. My husband and son and I live in eastern North Carolina. I'm also a provisionally licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a mental health counselor here in North Carolina. I help individuals and families who are wrestling through sexual or gender identity, whether in their own lives or the lives of a loved one. And she just goes on to talk about how had she grown up as a teenager today with what's happening right now, being inundated, inundated uh, with the social media 
influence and all of the videos that are out there being accessed on this topic, the multitude of stuff that kids are watching over and over again, and add to that how easily accessible Pornhub and other things are that they're watching as well, that even tend to encourage and foster these kinds of relationships. She says, I really wonder and believe that I would have applied the term transgender to my own experience of simply rebelling against the socially constructed gender stereotypes that that she felt were oppressive to her. And so as she described that, I just thought it was interesting that she described in those years what she was pursuing as idolatry. That's how she described it. She didn't know it at the time. It's not what she felt at the time. But it was idolatry for her. She began to idolize this or this and pursue it. And Ellen went on to just talk about how You know, when we open up scripture and read what God says about us and who we really are, there is in scripture, going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, when we were created in God's image, male and female, he created us. That is the binary. That is how he created us. And whenever we we talk about that, and we need to talk about that, we need to talk about how the scripture looks at that, that, that when it describes brother and sister and Older men teaching the younger and women the younger and husband and wife. Male-female binary is what Scripture teaches. And as we read through it, we see that anytime the Bible mentions crossing gender boundaries, it always speaks about it in the negative. It's not what God intended in his creation. And that's not just a biblical standpoint, but even medical science would affirm those sexes and how we are created in that way. And what Ellen talks about is that one of the most dangerous things in this new gender theory that's being expressed in our culture today is that the inner thoughts and feelings about anything, but in this topic specifically about gender, are the absolute primacy when determining gender identity. There's been an enthronement of thought patterns and feelings that she calls hyper-individualism, where the only thing that determines my gender or who I am or my identity is how I feel in that moment or what I think or sense about myself. And it has superseded everything else. Even though throughout history, when we make decisions about important matters, other sources come into play, those of of authority or those of, of scripture or of reason or of religion or of material facts or of of wise conclusions, all these things come into place. But we're in a culture right now to do that is almost perceived that you are bigot, you're a bigot, or there's transphobia going on, or you're abetting suicide, you're encouraging suicide of people. If you try to encourage them to think about this or wrestle with this through their dysphoria, their confusion in a biblical way, which that pressure is being put on people, which is why even parents in school systems in certain states where at one time you could remove your child from sex education uh, when they were doing that in health, if you were uncomfortable with how that was being taught or the way in which it was being taught or maybe some things that were being said. But you cannot do that in those states anymore whenever it, it comes uh, Whenever, whenever it comes to gender type issues or discussions or expressions or sexual orientation, because 
to pull them out of that, that is perceived as discrimination or harassment or, or bullying. And that's happening in California and New Jersey and New York and Colorado and Illinois and Northern Virginia and Oregon, where it is embedded into the curricula of what's being taught in those places. And, and as uh, we begin to wade into some of these things and look at them from a, a deep, deeper perspective, you know, we begin to realize that what Scripture teaches is going with our feelings or our subjective understandings. We should never trust that. The Bible would say, lean not on your own understanding. Jeremiah would say that when it comes to the heart, that it's deceitful above all things, it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's not even to bring into play the fact that, that even as adults with fully functioning, formed brains, People are wrestling with these issues. I think one of the concerns is when we see it happening among our minors, among small children who are still, their brains are still developing and forming their own sexual identity and their gender identity is being, as they come to understand it, is being formed. And it's in those moments when that's happening that we've got to be careful. And yet as a society, we are rapidly embracing transgender ideology and applying it to minor children at skyrocketing rates, even encouraging uh, people, uh, children to not desist from transitioning. And because of all the promotion about this, it is growing, especially among girls. I was reading a different article. Uh, there's a book called Irreversible Damage. Uh, Schreier is speaking to this and, and not from a, uh, a biblical Christian perspective at all. In fact, there would be things in the book we wouldn't ascribe to morally, but uh, has grave concern as a researcher, uh, professor, in, in what is being seen among a- adolescent girls. Because she found not only had 65% of adolescent girls discovered transgenderism after prolonged social media immersion, but she also found that the prevalence of transgender identification within some girls' friend groups was more than 70 times the expected rate. And what she found is they're incredibly more likely to identify themselves as transgender if their friends also had made the same decision. And she noted that transgenderism has increased over a thousand percent in the last decade, a thousand percent. And in looking at those statistics, she noted that before, uh, or she noted that since 2016, the increase has been even more notable that in 2016, natal females accounted for 46% of all sex reassignment surgeries in the United States. But just one year later, it was 70%. And in one study, Schreier cited among parents of transgender children who knew their children's social status, over 60% said that the announcement, it was a popularity boost when it came out. And that data collected from 256 parents whose children had not met the criteria for gender dysphoria in childhood, but suddenly identified as transgender in adolescence, that nearly 70% of the teenagers belonged to a peer group in which at least one friend had come out as transgender, but in some groups, the majority of friends had done so. This impacted significantly uh, girl groups and those kinds of relationships. And uh, so we see a, a much faster growth Uh, growth happening there than in other places. And as we just think through this in a culture where we are not identifying, none of us are in the way that God would have us to, we are all broken and sinful in this way. We, We have this growing trend as it relates to gender identity and confusion and dysphoria that's at work. And I cannot even begin today to, you know, 
touch on this very deeply. But if you wanted to read more about it, here's some ways you could do it. You could go to renew.org. This picture you see on the screen, you can see some articles there uh, that, that tackle this issue that can be helpful as you think through and wrestle with this. Uh, also, there was, as I was asking Alan to capture this screenshot for me, he also recommended a book called Embodied, it's called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. He said he also has a podcast, Theology in the Raw. And uh, he said that was, found some good resources there on this topic as well. And so I know that this is a vast topic that we're just scratching the surface here. But here's how this relates, because Romans 1 talks about this. Jeremiah talks about this, that, that when we begin to assume or pursue or grow affection or pour our energies into things, into cisterns that leak, that are not who God has created us to be, it will leave us feeling empty and struggling. And the bottom line is when it comes to gender confusion, those who begin the process of transitioning, I know people would say, hey, if you don't affirm what they're doing, you know, you're, they're at risk of suicide as you discourage them. Actually, if they begin transitioning, they are now at a much higher risk of suicide than if they had not. And this all comes back to who has God created us to be? What is our identity in him? And in the book of Jeremiah, what he would say to us is God is our spring of living water. And you pursue with everything you have. Otherwise, it's the idol of me. It's the idol of me, what I want, what I desire, what I'm pursuing. And I know that when we talk about these things, no matter what it is that we're wrestling with, I know that the scriptures tell us that we are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.4. We are to always speak with grace, seasoned with salt, Colossians would tell us. And so when it comes to loving people, regardless of how they identify, regardless of where they are in their journey of dysphoria or confusion, regardless of whether it's same-sex attraction or, 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 or it is uh, heterosexual, but they are not pursuing or following the Lord, every conversation that we have, it is to be seasoned with love and grace, even as we speak what God says into this so that we can live by him. And it's because at the root For every one of us, at the root of our own confusion and misdirected affection and willful sins, at the root of it all is that we have made a bad exchange. We have exchanged the glory of God for other things that are not what he created and designed. That is idolatry. And the Bible just reveals that there's really only two options here, God's way or the enemy's way. God's way or or an idol. Those are our options. And we must replace the idols that we've turned to and submit them to the care of God because only he is our creator. And what I want to do today is I want to take a moment to just let you reflect on this a little bit. In fact, I'm going to ask you for a few moments here just to just where you quietly sit, just close your eyes here where you are. And I want us just to take a moment before God just to think and reflect on some things here. One of the first things I'd like for you just to reflect on is, is I want you just to ask God in this moment, just between you and him, to reveal the broken cisterns that you've been trying to drink from. Those bad exchanges where you, you began to pursue something 
And I, I want you to ask God to just reveal to you right now, what are those broken cisterns in your life? And commit right now to a deeper trust of God. Let's take a few moments and just reflect on this. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. based on the cisterns that God is bringing to your mind right now, I want want you to think of this second question. Who could you share your story with this week? Because every one of us has a story. We have pursued, we have drank from these broken cisterns. They don't satisfy, they don't provide. And we have found that Jesus is our source of living water. If only we would turn to him. Pursue him, seek after him. He's everything that we need. I want you right now just to ask God, reveal to you, who could you share this with? Let them just hear your story, how you, you've done this. Multiple ways, different times, God's already revealed it to you. And who could you share this with? So that they too could begin to think about their need for Jesus, the source of living water. Let's ask God to reveal that to us right now. Lord, we are so desperate for you. Jesus, we need you. Apart from you, we're nothing. Jesus, in you are the words of life. You give us abundant life. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You are everything that we need. And God, I just pray right now that we would turn from these worthless idols in our life, these false affections, that lead us further away from you. And God, help us to turn our affection to you, to depend on you. We need you. And for every person in this room and every person listening right now who's made a bad exchange, Jesus, you are the one that gives us hope. You're the one that gives us freedom and forgiveness and a new opportunity. And Jesus, I pray that we would turn to you and receive it, receive the grace that you give in these moments when we need it the most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I know that for every one of us who's made a bad exchange, here's the good news today. Pretty heavy stuff, but here's the good news today. Jesus has given us a great exchange. A great exchange.
Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us about it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a great exchange. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to become sin for us, to take the punishment for us, to exchange his life for our life where the punishment of God was taken out on Jesus so that his righteousness, his perfect obedience could then be credited to us, that God would make us righteous, declare us righteous before God. He exchanged his life for our life. He became the substitute. He was the ransom that was paid so that we could be freed and forgiven. I mean, this is a great exchange that is available for every person who puts their hope and their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ. And today it's for all of us. We want to take a moment right now to reflect on this. In fact, if you would take out your, the element of communion that you picked up today, and if you didn't, and you're in the room, they're on the tables at the back of the room around here. Feel free to grab one right now. If you're watching online, you can grab those elements as well. And the reason for this is because when we eat of bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, this has been broken into pieces for us, representing a broken body. And we drink of this cup, the fruit of the vine, thinking and reflecting on the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. This is not just a time of, of remembrance, of just thinking back. It is a declaration that this is our life. This is our salvation. Not, not, not the elements, but what they represent and what Jesus did for us. He is our life and our salvation. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. We could be redeemed. And so when we eat and drink of this, we are declaring, Jesus, we are dependent on you. You are the living water. You're the one that saves. We find everything we need in you. God, we repent. We turn from our sins. We confess those sins. And Jesus, we turn to you. We submit our lives to you. We thank you. And we declare that you are truly Lord. And I want to do that now as we take of this bread. Let's eat of this Receive this bread. Receive it now in remembrance of what Christ did as he gave his body broken for us. And as we receive this juice representing the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins, let this be a moment that we declare our complete dependence on his lifeblood that he gives to us. Thank you, Jesus. Come to the living water. Build your life on Jesus. He's your firm foundation. He's everything you need. As you stand to your feet right now, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be stepping out to decision point here. And if you're ready to begin a relationship with Christ, or you need to pray with someone, or you want to place membership in this church, or you want to partner, you, you, there's just something God's laid in your heart. I would love to visit with you there. If you're watching online, go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. That'll begin a conversation with us. And let this be a moment of commitment to him as we sing. I'll meet you right over here. 
Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.